0: This recording is from Fintech Nexus USA, formerly known as London Fintech USA, held at the Javits Center in New York City on May 25th to 26, 2022. It's from the track Regulation for the Next Phase of Fintech, sponsored by Cross River Bank, and is titled How to Reinvigorate Government's Approach to Innovation. Speaking on this session is Sultan Meggie, with moderator Phil Goldfeder from Cross River Bank.
1: For those of you who made it in here, I want to just say thank you, thank you for coming in. I know uh, coming back right after lunch is never an easy, uh, never an easy thing, and and clearly I'm not the draw that I thought I was. Um, we're gonna have to work on this for next year. But I, I want to first and foremost thank you for being here, and of course uh, Sultan, Maggie, uh, for being here, and I appreciate you making the trip literally to Washington just for this. You're jumping on a, on a train. Plane. On a plane, yeah, and, plane and circling back. And so I, I appreciate this. And so you've had a long, long distinguished career, right? You've worked in government, you worked on the private side. So I'd love, again, and we were just joking about this sort of going from private to public, private to pr- uh, public to private. Obviously, you've done a lot just in the last couple of months, you've made a few announcements. And so let's just talk in general, public to private, private to public. I mean, tell me sort of what of the more memorable parts of your career and what were the bigger challenges?
0: Well, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my life in government-funded research and artificial intelligence. And so that's, you know, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy. So, you know, kind of government adjacent. And then I went right to the New York Stock Exchange, which is a totally different animal, right? And going from big corporate to startups, and I did a series of startups. I've done cloud, I've done biotech, I've done fintech. And then to kind of retire the third time, I joke, and, and go into a regulatory body was really... I mean, many people thought I was insane, including myself occasionally. But the you, know, you did too, I know. You 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 said as much to me. Um, the more interesting thing, though, is that what we really need more of, especially as we go through this big generational evolution, is far more people with applied experience especially in stem who've gone through the academic cycles who've gone through different commercial cycles and then to also go through government cycles right and i went through a a bit of a a bit of a regime change as part of that as well and a you learn a tremendous amount so anybody who can take a year or two go into the government do something i highly recommend it you come out kind of having a much broader appreciation of how things operate and frankly they need it i mean the median age in the federal regulatory system is 57 um, which you know really does set it up for quite a big transition coming, and they don't have as big a hiring pipeline as they used to. I know there are at least two, because I recognize them, uh, f- fairly recent former federal regulatory people in the room who've gone back to the private sector, and guess what, they're not 57, because... They actually want to you know go off and have a career and stuff so it's it's been a different the different transition i think
1: so it's funny because that i mean i have a million questions to ask you and i don't have that much time but that asks sort of the the perfect segue into sort of so how do you actually build that expertise right right so how do you bring those those things together because unfortunately you're not getting that you know not as many people are going into public service for many reasons they don't go to public service and then oftentimes people on public service generally don't leave, right? You see that a lot, and so how do you actually, number one, find ways to make them work together, or number two, actually
0: change the system? I feel like you just asked me three questions that are books in answers, <laughs> so I, and first off, I don't have the answer to them, right? So let's be real. I, the the biggest challenge and the biggest thing that I think we can do is really getting that STEM education, that STEM background into not just the government, but also into larger corporations. Um, you know, I was on something called the deputies list, uh, which is kind of a, a list of kind of pretty, you know, kind of senior people at agencies and of the 187 or whatever the number is, something it's under 200, but that number, there are only like four people with STEM, any STEM background at all on that list. Right. And so, to me, it's not just—it's not just a cultural issue which we have to do. But we also just have to get that STEM thing figured out, because the private sector has figured this out. Like all of the trillion-dollar companies are fundamentally led by people with STEM backgrounds. They're not led by people who just did the Wharton thing or the HBS thing or whatever. Those are both great schools, by the way, I'm not besmirching them, even though I don't teach it, either of them. you get to that. Next. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, so we have that problem. And then the other one is the nature of these agencies, the nature of these organizations is changing, right? There aren't companies or organizations anymore. that get to ignore technology. Like you don't get to have your staff not understand how to like, I ch- jokingly say, change the ringtone on your iPhone, right? Like that's, that's It is no longer a tech-optional kind of environment, and that's a lot of work we have to do. We really have to get to a point where tech is native to the people in that, and that's going to happen over the next 15 years as, as this, the last of the baby boomers and the first of the Gen Xers retire, but it's going to be a fight in some of these places.
1: And so you've gone, obviously you've done a tremendous amount. Uh, you're now teaching at Duke, um, and you had a big announcement yesterday. Yeah. What's that?
0: Yeah, so I joined Reciprocal Ventures as a, as a senior advisor. Reciprocal, for those who don't know, is a early, kind of through-A-round uh, venture firm here in New York focused exclusively on Web3 infrastructure. Um, and so, they're investors in, like, the graph, and they were a lot of the, the money into Solana, but then also, they're an investor in Protego, which you should be paying attention to because it's a really interesting trust company that's just getting started. Um, you know, their portfolio was great, their people were great, and they are taking a proactive stance on regulatory compliance in, the, in, their, in their organization, in their portfolio. And it's one of the few VC firms that, that actually has that and has a, an operational platform that allows them to, to really add a lot of value to that. And it's a, and plus, it's just a really nice group of people. One of the things they don't tell you when you go to work for certain large corporations or, or governmental entities is you don't really get to work with nice people. A lot of the people you work with aren't you know, kind of... Like the worst of like the, the, the mean guys or the mean girls from high school, you know, you have to sit at a certain table, you know, um, I'm, I'm trying not to look at the, at some former people in this room because I can I can tell the look on their face as I say this, but it's, it's not exactly the best organizational culture. And so you want to find a place that's nice and yes, teaching at Duke. So building, uh, basically web three cybersecurity and AI programs at the engineering school. So amazing.
1: So sort of what's on, on many people's minds, you and I met, um, many, many years ago, long before you were in government. And, and I actually you know, sort of met the chairman of the FDIC, Ellen McWilliams, when she first took office. And when she told us the first time we met her a few months into her term is that, like, innovation is going to be critical, right? And she's looking for someone to lead the innovation team. And that took years. Um, it literally took years. And then when she did make the, the, the pick, you were the first innovation officer at the FDIC. And so, I mean, I have 10 questions right off of that alone, which I'm sure are books as well. But let me ask you this first. Number one sort of what drew you in, right? And, and I don't want to hear the, the public service and giving back. I mean, you know, sort of talk to me about Yelena's pitch to you. What drew you in? Um, and then we'll get to the next question about what pushed you out.
0: Um Can we not talk about the second one? (laughs) Um, Chairman McWilliams, regardless of your agreement or disagreement on her politics or policy or anything like that, she's a great leader. She's a great person to work with. And she was a characteristically different and more modern leader than you generally see in a lot of federal agencies. She put a really interesting team around her. She was more interested in expertise and merit than checking a political box, which I really appreciated. Um, I had, I had exited a company. I had sold off my last fintech and I really didn't know what to do. I- what else to do. And I'd been part of the kind of network of people that she and and her chief of staff had been leaning on to try to find somebody for this role. And the, the the, the way it works is the, the very last speech I gave before I left being chairman of this company, she and I were in a zoom green room together and we were just kind of chatting because we knew each other. And I just kind of said off the cuff, you know, well, this is my last speech and I'm, you know, selling blah, blah, blah. And she's like, really? And if you haven't met, Yelena, she can get a look in her face, and that look is somewhere between shark and assassin. I'm not really sure. Um, and about 30 seconds after the Zoom ended, her chief of staff called me and uh, and and asked me to seriously consider uh, uh, taking this job.
1: And so now, again, I'm not going to ask you the question. I'm going to I'm going to keep it as broad as possible and allow you to say what you're going to say. But I. Talk to me about your experience at the agency, right? Obviously, and and you already mentioned kind of not having the right backgrounds or Mm -hmm. not always having the... I have also sort of the idea of tech hesitancy or technophobic, right? The idea of innovation. Look, and and we deal with it every day. I think everybody in this room sort of thinks about how we innovate finance and how we could sort of push the envelope, not as it relates to regulatory compliance or consumer protection, but how we
0: can find new ways to serve. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about your experience. I mean... So one of the first jobs I had was modernizing the, the parts of the New York Stock Exchange and so moving it from basically mainframes and ticker tape to what became internet-based trading and you know T0 and all this other great stuff right and we built a lot of that technology and that was a big or- organizational change you know from from the entire ecosystem right and so I've spent 20 plus years knowing how to do that and so that was one of the appealing reasons to go in and, and try to start modernizing and, and getting that organization to be a little more of innovative internally. There's a second component of that job that was specifically focused on how to find safe, thoughtful, secure, you know, not scary ways to start br- bringing more innovation into the regulated banking system. Because, One of the things that I, that if you see, if you look at my LinkedIn, you'll see I'm a member of Bretton Woods. So Bretton Woods is where the modern, you know, banking order, financial order came from IMF, World Bank, all of that. And the reason the US dollar is the global reserve currency is because of a meeting at Bretton Woods and the US ambassador being kind of sneaky with scribbling something on a piece of paper while the British ambassador was going to the bathroom, which is a great story. And you should totally like read the history of that. But American and Democratic successes in the back half of the 20th century after world war ii is on the back of the american banking system full stop we are not positioned for that to be true this century and that the reason we aren't is because there is not a safe set of systems for innovation to be brought into the system it always has to be done on the side or over here or very incrementally and that works in a certain generational context but if you're looking at the people's republic of china And what they're doing in terms of expanding consumer and small business access to banking in Africa in particular, we are at a point where I watch global reserve currency, US percentage global reserve currency. It's an IMF report. You should absolutely get that email once a month or once a quarter. I can't remember how often it comes out. And I'm old enough, I remember, when it was in the 70% range. And then it got into the 60s, and now it's into the 50s. And depending on which view of the world you have, by the time we get our next president, it might be under 50, which hasn't happened. And so for me, that was the reason why. And the great thing is, is 20% of the agency bought into that. And it was great. And we got a lot done. We got a tremendous amount done, actually, considering what I expected to get done. But then there was a bunch of the agency that was just like, I just want to have 10 hours of Zooms every day and, you know, write reports and, you know, That kind of stuff, right? And they didn't, you know. There's this notion that you see this in a lot of a a lot of, you know, larger organizations. It's like a not my problem problem, and there are a lot of people in the regulatory community who are like, well, my job is to do this little thing, like cog in a machine kind of thing, and you there aren't a lot of really strong leaders who can kind of get people to lift their heads up from that. And when you do, the people there are so amazing that they turn around this like epically amazing work. Like we took projects that the IT department, which is basically the worst it organization i've ever dealt with that said it would take three years to do something we did it in six weeks when you gave the the few experts we had so out of an agency of six or 7, 000, six thousand thousand six thousand full-time and about a thousand contractors there were about 75 that were really amazing people and you get out of their way and let them do their job and they do amazing things the problem is, is we need way more of those and a lot less of the the fluff
1: so I, I say this all the time, and it's easier on the private side, and I say this at banker conferences, is that banks that refuse to innovate are are gonna suffer the consequences of that. Right. So how does that how does that hold on the regulatory side?
0: I mean, the exact same thing is true, except instead of it being the agency that suffers or, you know, your checkbook or a main street business that all of a sudden can't get access to cost effective banking products or services, it deprecates the ability of our nation to lead. And that's the thing that really bothers me. And that's the thing that worries me. And it's why I can only be here for a few hours because I was in the Senate yesterday and I'm going to be in the Senate again tomorrow because this is the problem. The problem is American leadership and the regulatory community is way too focused on a planning horizon that the average employee is thinking about their retirement and not thinking about how do we position banking to actually be innovative? Because we could be in a situation with certain aspects of this where Technologies are not allowed in. So I worry about AI a lot. I worry about crypto a lot. We could be in a situation where through a you know administrative change at an agency, every bank in the country cannot afford – there's no bank in the country that could afford to actually do anything in crypto because of an accounting rule change. So you should look up SAB-121, which came out of the SEC. I would not be at all surprised if every banking regulatory agency in the U.S. at the federal level adopted it. Well, that means there's no crypto in the banking system. So, where does it go? Does it go overseas? And does every American then start shipping their money overseas? We're talking about $2 trillion inside of the crypto ecosystem right now, right? It's basically the size of the credit union space or what was in the the Fed reverse buyback account last night. Um, So, it's not like a small amount of money. What happens if that all just leaves?
1: So, which, right, and you talk about it's not just about reputation and the US standing, right? Obviously, there's a tremendous national security
0: implementation.
1: implication. Um yeah. Talk like again, sort of talk how that plays out.
0: Well, I mean, I'm gonna have to tap dance on the cybersecurity stuff because I spent a lot of time in, in that space. But this is we are in the largest threat landscape we've ever had. The banking system is the soft underbelly. And if in a post-sanctions universe, if Vladimir before he dies of colon cancer or whatever the hell's going on with him, if he decides to, you know, burn it, but he doesn't want to use nukes because he knows Russia will get destroyed if that happens. The banking system is the obvious target and I would be incredibly cautious. So I give this this advice to, to banks all the time. I did it when I was inside too. I said, listen, you have to have a chief security officer or chief information security officer. That person cannot report to your head of IT or your head of tech, that's a conflict. And you have to have somebody on your board of directors that's accountable for that. So at a federal agency, your chief security officer should not report to your CIO. Well, they all do. You should have a member of your board or member of your governance system specifically focused on cybersecurity. Well, guess what? None of them do. And so you look at all the best-in-class things that they tell the banks they have to do, the regulatory body should be doing it themselves. And that's a tough thing. And so I'm not a federal employee. I make no money from the federal government. I'm completely away from that right now. And I got to tell you, it keeps me up at night just as a private citizen. There are two banks in the United States. That I have uh, that I have relationships with because I think they pass my cybersecurity best vetting. I haven't looked at Cross River uh, yet, so don't worry. Saying. I know I, I actually haven't I, looked at Cross I
1: wasn't going to ask the question. <laughs> you were early, early on, sort of, and in, in sort of talking, staying on that theme. Early on in the war, you were sort of, I think, vocal about Russian sort of possible cyber threats or cyber attacks. I mean, we're months into it now. Yeah. How much of that has come to fruition? How much of it's not? How much does that still keep you up at night? It's
0: it's a lot different than what we thought. Like we thought they would go right for American economics. Um, I think uh, Fiona Hill and a few other people made it very clear to, uh, to to the Russian apparatus that you know you you screw with our economy and you're gonna have a whole other problem. And so you we've seen a lot in in satellite communications, telecommunications infrastructure, you know, military supply chain, logistics, stuff like that. We've seen um, you know we've seen uh, U.S. military flights attempt to be disrupted by a fake GPS signal, stuff like that like kind of industrial level military cyber i still think it's a it's a possibility and the longer this goes on and and the and the more it looks like russia is, is going to just get bled to death like like repeat Viet, what vietnam happened to the united states but do it over 18 months instead of over what seven years or whatever vietnam was um you know we're going to be in a really i, I think we're going to see the russians start to get really desperate so that's the thing i worry about so
1: and, and last question um uh... Obviously, you're, you've now, we talked about what you're doing now. I mean, is there a point where you look at the state of the federal government, the state of some agencies, and you say, I'm going to find a way to get back into it um, and actually be a part of, continue to try and be a part of the solution from the inside?
0: So, a friend of mine, before I took the job, said, You need to have enough money when you go in that for every day you're in, you have between one and one and a half days out to recover from it. So if you're in, so I was in for a year. So that means I need to have about a year and a half to recover. Uh, so I, you can ask me that in about a year and a half, or a year and four months, or whatever. Ask me that question again, and I'll do it because I, uh, I, I, I don't want to. But, um, but I am apparently on an, on a list, which I discovered recently for one job, which I'm terrified if that's true.
1: Well, you have my full support and endorsement for that. And again, I want to just thank you for, number one, your time in, in, in office, for your friendship, and for everything you're doing for the entire ecosystem. So thank you so much for making the trip. Thank you.